Hi, I'm Umushu. And I'm Lindsay Claiborne, and you're listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, listeners. Welcome back. We have a brand new episode with today's guest, Dr. Mara Hart, who is the research director at Future of Fish. Hi, Mara. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Okay. What is Future of Fish? Future of Fish is, I like to think of us as a scrappy little nonprofit that does big work in the world of trying to create sustainable seas, um, both for fish and for the people who depend on them. So our focus is primarily on creating business-oriented solutions. So we work to really help um, the seafood supply chain and fishers to better trace and track their seafood so that they can ensure that it is um, caught responsibly and legally and in sustainable and eco-friendly ways, but also so that those actors um, who are doing the right thing can be rewarded for that in the marketplace so that we as consumers and other retail outlets can you know, choose to buy from sustainable, responsible fisheries that are well-managed um, and, and have that option, which believe it or not, is really kind of hard in today's seafood marketplace. A lot of the fish is unknown, of unknown origin. I was going to say, that sounds like a big undertaking. <laughs> it is, it is, but it's exciting. It, it's, um, it's, it's really neat because there are great technology solutions, but a lot of the work also involves really helping to align um, the partners in the supply chain and work with folks who deal specifically with management. So it's a combination of science and technology and management and industry and business prowess all sort of coming together to to design new new solutions and innovations. Can you take us through an example of what would be an unsustainable fish and then what would be the process for a sustainable one? Sure. So uh, a hypothetical unsustainable fish is a fish that lives a long time and does not reproduce very often or reproduces only after it's grown um, uh, for many years. So it just can't, it's, it's sort of like a mammal, right? Um, there are fish, like sharks are a great example. Sharks are long-lived. Uh, they often take over a decade to reproduce. They don't have that many um, babies at a time. A female um, often will have maybe a few pups to maybe a few dozen. And so when we go out and fish them uh, really hard, as we do with a, uh, in a lot of places in the world, their numbers plummet. Um, other fish were, that are particularly vulnerable to overfishing include um, ones that get together um, for annual spawning events, mass spawning events. So you have all the adults gathering in one place at one time. And that tends to be a great way to ensure reproduction because you have lots of partners um, kind of spewing off their sperm and eggs into the water at the same time, which is really good for fertilization rates, but it also is really easy pickings for fishers. Um, and so they go and fish on a spawning aggregation and they're basically killing and taking out of the water all of the mature adults of a population at one time, right? That doesn't leave very many adults for the next year to come back and, and spawn again. So those are unsustainable um, fisheries practices. And really it's just a question of understanding how a fish reproduces, what its life cycle is like, so how long it takes to reproduce, um, when, 
and some of the strategies that are involved there so that we can cater our management to say, okay, what, what's an amount of fish that we can take out of the water that that's um, going to be reasonable. Uh, a great example, uh, building off that, the, the idea of spawning, aggregating fish are um, Nassau grouper. They're an endangered species. Um, they've been overfished and in fact, certain spawning aggregations in the Caribbean no longer exist because the fishers have literally removed every single last one. Um, but in the Cayman Islands, a recent effort by a group of scientists combined with some nonprofit organizations in a project called the Grouper Moon Project have worked really closely with the government there. And they've been able to monitor and document um, the annual spawning aggregations. And they've been able to show that if we close fishing down, that there are um, there are rebounding numbers. So more juveniles are coming that are now turning into adults because they've been given enough time to, to grow. And the adults who are there are larger and producing um, you know, more and more eggs and sperm. And the population has started there to stabilize and even increase slightly. And what that can do is then lead to more fish during the open fishing season for the fishers to benefit from. So if you can have in place good management um, that respects uh, the reproductive habits and the life cycles of these species, then you can have really, really great fisheries um, that can support livelihoods and give us great sushi while also making sure that um, our kids and grandkids and their grandkids are also going to have that same same benefit. Is it hard to get governments or whoever you need to, to, to do this to actually kind of commit to those kind of decisions? Or is it once you show them the numbers... Is, does it follow pretty easily? Um, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. In in some places, number science is often not enough, right? Because you're t you're talking in a lot of places about someone's livelihood. Like to ask a fisher to stop fishing and not provide that individual with any sort of supportive uh, framework <laughs> is not really um, it's not really going to fly, and it's not really fair. Right, they're they're folks who need to feed their families and feed themselves, and um, so it's often it's a case where it's a combination of looking at the science to understand the um, the biology of the fish and making sure we know what is reasonable, but then also looking at the social and economic conditions and the logistical conditions that will allow for a plan to be put in place that's that's going to be viable um, and support both thriving ecosystems and thriving local economies. So um, that's something that um, I care a lot about. And it's one of the reasons why I love working at Future of Fish, because we have business strategists and folks who spent their lives in the seafood industry. And so it's not it's not just about um, conservation to kind of like kick all the people out. It's really about sustainable use. How, how can we be smarter so that um, both the people and the ecosystem can benefit? And as a research director, what is your sort of day-to-day -day job? <laughs> it's... Um, it, that also is a mixed bag. <laughs> it, it's um, a lot of, we're a virtual organizations. So I spend a lot of time doing what we are doing on Skype, mm -hmm. <laughs> talking with my colleagues and um, hatching schemes to, uh, to, to save the world, right? Um, oh, no big deal. It, it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, oceans, save the oceans. Um, we, we have different areas where we work um, in different fisheries that we target. And so a lot of my job is figuring out what are the research questions and the information that we need to be able to make those smart 
business decisions um, around what's what's going to be workable for the supply chain, say, in terms of the technology that can go in or the kind of management that's going to be appropriate in a place. And we have lots of partners who have lots of fantastic and very specific knowledge to help us with that. But my job is to overall, when we go into a new fishery or are continuing to work somewhere, is to constantly be figuring out what is it that we need to know so that we can make the best decision possible and trying to find that information, look for patterns, look for um, the the obstacles and the underlying reasons why those obstacles are there and how can we then bring good information to the table to help innovate and, and overcome those challenges. Um, when you think about trying to change or, or trying to work in a fishery and make a sustainable fishery, the fish are going to do their thing, right? <laughs> they're not they're not really going to you're not really worried about changing fish behavior. What you're trying to do is actually change people behavior, right? And to do that, we need to figure out not only the resources that people need, but what are the incentives? You know, what's what are the value systems and motivations People make decisions for certain reasons. Sometimes it's because they're being told to. Sometimes it's because they um, have to based on, you know, the, the larger constraints around them. So we're constantly trying to uncover what, what is driving this behavior and what's a way that we can shift that behavior while still respecting, you know, cultural factors and um, value systems and motivations that, that we can work with. To, to try to encourage that, that behavior shift or encourage a change that can help, um, help the system to be more sustainable. So it's, it's kind of fun. It's, it's like, you know, like any good scientist, I, I'm an investigator and kind of a bit of a detective trying to figure out why things are happening the way they're happening and how can we then solve and, and um, solve around those conditions. How much information is out there already, though? I mean, if you're if you're coming up with research questions, which makes mm-hmm. sense to me, are you coming up with ones and then you say, okay, well, I need this kind of data, and then you say, is that data, does it exist? Or do you say, do yeah. I need to go hire someone to get it? Or is it both? Yeah, or so is it- both, both. So we, we oh, absolutely okay. try to use what's available, right? Because you always want to leverage mm-hmm. resources that exist and not duplicate effort. But um, a core strength of ours at Future Fish is we do – ethnographic research. So we have um, a wonderful cultural anthropologist who goes into the field with us and and other field um, members of our team who have great knowledge, um, but every fishery is different. Every community is different. And we go and we interview people. We go and we observe. We see, you know, the way um, fish moves through a particular processing plant to try to understand um, again, why, why is traceability, where's traceability going to be possible? Why, what's, what are going to be the, um, the challenges that these folks fa- face? You know, why do they package it in this order? Why do they stand where they stand? Um, same with fishers, you know, how, how are they fishing? Where do they fish? Why do they fish? Uh, those are all things that we go and really dig into so that we can understand through all the different stakeholder lenses what those driving motivations are. Um, so there's a lot of um, cultural and and logistical knowledge that's in addition to the more traditional scientific and ecological data that we use to, to try to understand the state of the fishery. And a lot of times, again, we're partnering with um, other 
marine conservation organizations that have um, been on the ground in these locations for a really long time. And they really are the holders of the knowledge. And we, we rely on them to understand the system as well as we can. And then we're sort of the, um, the pattern finders <laughs> to, under, to try to take that higher sort of system level approach to say, okay, given everything that we see, what are the drivers that seem to be moving the system in the direction we want it to go? What are the obstacles that are preventing um, progress? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. It just seems so overwhelming. I mean, I mean, it's, I just, it's fascinating how many pieces there are and, and like, like your job yeah. is, seems like to see what pieces you need to, to whatever, to fix whatever the yeah. puzzle is. But I, I have a lot of help, right? So um, I'm the research director, but we have a strategy director. We have a, a um, global ops director. I, you know, I've got fantastic, again, we're a small team, but we're a really um, effective and, and tight team. And I, I certainly lean on on others for, <laughs> for a lot of help. How did you wind up doing this? I mean, this seems like a job that you can't really train for. You know, it it's, oh gosh, it's been, it's been a really neat path. So in grad school, I studied human impacts on coral reefs, um, especially fishing impacts. And during that time is when I realized that I loved science. I loved being in the field and doing research, but that the science wasn't enough to solve these problems. Um, it was really clear. Data alone wasn't going to do it. Um, we really needed to have broader engagement and Two things I realized was one, that we needed better storytelling for what was happening in the oceans and for motivating um, more stakeholders to get involved and to, to become interested in trying to help solve these problems. And the second was that a core piece of those stakeholders was the business community and industry itself. So I was really interested in figuring out how to tell better stories, which is one track that I've pursued. Um, through the book writing. And then the other was this idea of how can we get business to um, be more involved and for our solutions to be um, aligned with what business is doing um, versus always fighting, trying to fight the industry, right? I just didn't think that that just doesn't work well. Um, I was really lucky in that I was working um, for uh, Carl Safina, who's a fantastic um, and legend in, in marine conservation and fantastic author. Uh, I was working for what was formerly the Blue Ocean Institute, his nonprofit, and I was approached by um, someone who knew Cheryl, and we had connected and knew this work that was going on, and they needed somebody who could help um, explain fisheries to folks who were just entering the space. So um, Cheryl was working with um, design thinkers and you know business folks and strategists, but none of them had any idea about you know, global fisheries. So I was brought in at first just to sort of help um, articulate all of the complexities of seafood supply chains and fisheries management to this group of individuals and help with that initial research process. And I just fell in love with her model and the um, the idea that what Future of Fish was trying to work towards were these, these larger system level changes that um, really could help shift the playing field. And it was just really exciting. It's been a huge learning curve. Um, but again, if I think if you're trained as a scientist, ultimately you are trained to figure out how to answer questions 
it's, it's very much like a journalist, right? You're trained to try to figure out how you answer questions in a way that you have good evidence for. And whether that's a, you know, typical scientific experiment like we all go through in seventh grade that's done at a lab bench, or it's going out into the field and interviewing individuals to try to really understand their perspectives and look for patterns in that kind of data, or it's, you know, swimming underwater with a clipboard counting fish. In the end, you're looking for patterns in the information that tell a greater story. And that's really what we do. And when you find out what that story is, it often leads to more questions, but it also can lead to insights that then lead to opportunities and ideas. And and so yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of just how it went. It was just it was just dumb luck, really. <laughs> and uh, and then just kind of feeling like this was new and different and a place to stretch. I, I miss I should say I miss being in the water, right? I miss putting on a scuba tank and diving down there and just having time beneath the waves because that really is my favorite thing to do. I, I've always said that the best job in the world is the one where your suit is a wetsuit. Right. You can't beat that. <laughs> I like it. But um, this is this feels like where I'm supposed to be and where I can make the biggest impact. Like I I again, I the science is really important and there are great scientists out there getting us the information, but we have got to get the information um, and apply it in a way that's going to be um, effective for creating the change we need. And and we need that now more than ever. I've been waiting this entire interview just to bring up this next topic. Um, I recently, <laughs> I recently finished reading your book, Sex in the Sea, and it is amazing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Thank that you. and how you came up with the idea to write a book? I, yeah, I can. So it, there's a, there's a good story there. So our, I think it's a funny story at least. I, as I explained, I was doing my doctoral work studying, uh, the impact of overfishing on coral reefs. And this was back in sort of 2001 through 2006, seven. And at that time, we knew reefs were in trouble. Um, the science community did. But again, it was not on the radar. There were not articles, um, you know, in the popular press or, you know, it just wasn't on the minds of people. Um, it is much more so now than it was then. But even still, ocean topics in general take, take a backseat to most every other um, news or even non-news item <laughs> that comes across um, across the way. So I, I knew early on during grad school that I wanted to storytell and that we needed to be getting this information out there about what was happening to the reefs in particular. But also I knew that just talking about all the bad news isn't really great. I mean, right. You're a journalist, Lindsay, like it just that people don't want to just read bad news. Like that's, mm, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't motivate action. Right. Yep. So I, in the back of my mind, I was constantly thinking about what's the story here that that's going to be exciting and interesting and fascinating and really, um, speak to a crowd that's beyond your typical, you know, ocean lover crowd. Um, and <laughs> so I was at a cocktail party, um, during grad school, I think this was like, I think it was in 2006. I honestly think it took 10 years for this whole thing to happen. Um, but I was talking to a group of, um, fellow graduate students, all women. And we were sort of having one of those conversations, that age old conversation about, um, how the, our two sexes cannot understand each other, (laughs) the difference between (laughs) men and women and all the confusion that comes. And, and one of the, um, 
one of my friends made this offhand comment of like, oh, you know, I just wish I could be a guy and be in their body for a day. And then I'd at least like know what they were thinking, know what was going on, you know, from their perspective. And me being the nerdy marine biologist just blurted out like, oh, yeah, if only we were parrotfish. Because <laughs> of course, why would of you course, say that, I, right? And I, I mean, I can remember it so clearly. These like everybody sort of stopping, you know, and like looking at me with this, you know, big wide eyes, kind of like, what are you talking about? And um, so I went on, of course, to be like, oh well, you know, fish change sex. Many start as males and turn into females, or they start as females and transition into males. So. With parrotfish, they, you know, start as females and transition to males, so they would they would know what it's like from both, you know, sides of the aisle, so to speak. And um, it was still quiet. Everybody was still listening. <laughs> You're like, what else am I supposed like, to say? Yeah, and they were like, are you, like, what? You know, and I, it, and so I went on for a few more minutes, and I was able to, you know, talk about how this happens, and, and then, you know, sort of subtly say, you know, so if you imagine that in, in fishing, we go and target all the biggest parrotfish, we're taking out all the males, right? So that's a problem. So these are important things to know if you're, if you want healthy oceans. And everybody, you know, sort of was listening and was like really captivated at this, you know, totally random, you know, house party <laughs> talking about fish sex. And about five or 10 minutes later, I went, I think to go, you know, refill my wine glass and I overheard one of the people I'd been talking to telling somebody else, saying, did you know that fish change sex? Isn't that crazy? You're like, I just and, said, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. But, but no, it, that's, I just stopped and was like, that's the book. Like, people talk, are talking about like sex. Everybody wants to know about sex. And the oceans have the weirdest sex around. <laughs> and it relates directly to sustainability. And it was just like, bing. That's what I got to write about. I got to write a book all about the weird sex lives of marine life and how we're messing them up and what we can do differently. So it's, that's actually, yeah, that's, well, I <laughs> finished reading the book and I was at work and I was reading at work and I got to the chapter where it talks about lobster sex. Mm, and I was like, Lindsay, can you Google this for me? Because I'm terrified to Google it at work. <laughs> and I was, of course, at work. And I said, no way am I doing this while I'm sitting at work. Oh, I know. I've been, I've been, I honestly had genuine, one of the pieces I need to write are all the things that happen to you unexpectedly when you're writing a book about weird animal sex. Because I seriously was like, if anybody finds my computer, they're going to take my children away. Like, <laughs> just like, if they go back through my, like, web history, like, I am done for. Um, yeah, I had, I had a moment where I went um, to my mother-in-law and like very explicitly explained to her, I am searching match.com so that I can understand how it works because I'm making an analogy for how whales find their dates. <laughs> but I swear, trust me, I am not your doing son anything. is fine. Exactly. Like I, I, it was just, there was, there were so many moments like that where I'm like, oh, this is, this could be really misconstrued. So I hear, yeah. But lobster sex is great. I hope I hope you were able to um, find find more answers if you wished. <laughs> did you, I was. Did you actually like, ever Google it, Momo? I did, uh, and I found some YouTube videos that were fine. And then also, like the the, the the clip that came up the most was the Friends video where they're talking yes. about like being someone's lobster, like yes. my lobster type thing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that came up the most. Um, yeah. Was there a particular species that you found most interesting or surprising? Well. 
lobsters certainly are far more romantic than I ever anticipated, and I think than most people would expect. So they're a great tale. Um, but I would say one of my one of my favorite sort of not just a species, but kind of the topic, the chapter was the inner chambers chapter about all the things that happen in the female body that a lot of them are really new research that are sort of turning turning on its head the notions of how much control um, we've always thought males had over the sort of um, sexual destination <laughs> or the, the sexual outcomes um, in terms of uh, being able to fertilize and kind of control copulation and that females really um, have some hidden and powerful potential to control who is fathering their offspring. So the um, the work that Dr. Sarah Mesnick is doing on whale vaginas and understanding the incredibly convoluted and complex structures inside um, different whale and dolphin species was fascinating and just, I mean, whale vaginas. Like, do you need more? It, they, I tried so they, hard It's incredible. Giggle. Right? No, you no. can giggle. It's, it's okay. Please you giggle. Know, I, I, I've, I've done this. I've, I've done a few talks for, like, high, high school science classes. Oh, my God. They must sit lose there, it. Like, they, oh, well, they sit there, and they're, like, wide-eyed, and you can just tell they're trying so hard not – and I'm, like, you guys, this is weird. Like, you can you can giggle. You can also be kind of freaked out because some of this stuff is crazy. They all sort of sit back, and they're, like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that and, – and the sharks, um, you know, sharks have similarly really interesting stuff going on. So I just – I loved speaking with the researchers about discovering these kinds of things that that have been really surprising. And, you know, they they do, you know, I'm a female. It's kind of cool to be like, ha, it's not okay. We There's a little more going on inside there than, than we thought. Nature's not quite, as always, right? It's not quite so simple. simple and um, right. I, I loved that. And then, of course, there's Ocidex. I mean, the bone-eating zombie worms of the deep are are truly bizarre and having harems of microscopic males that you know live inside the female and shoot sperm out of their heads is is pretty surprising <laughs> you're like you're like throwing every bizarre science fiction like option like the zombie bone oh, eating yeah. heron oh, like yeah. hair, it's like every pot it's not just one of them it's all of them i know I know. And the, and it's and it's all been discovered in the past 15 years, right? I mean, this is why it's it's so the oceans are just so rad and and I love I love that here on our own planet we have this incredible environment that we are still barely literally barely scratching the surface of. And um space science is awesome. I totally love outer space, but you don't have to go there. <laughs> You know, you don't have to look beyond our our beautiful blue rock to see that there is just some crazy stuff. And and that's what I I mean, that's the thing, right? Everybody's like, you wrote such a great book. I'm like, nature wrote the book. I, I just like put it all together, but nature came up with this stuff. <laughs> and it's better than anything I could have imagined. So um yeah, it was really fun. It was really fun to to dive into all that. Oh, I just love the story of the people in the boat and then the whale penis appears. <laughs> no. They call it, they also, they call it Pink Floyd. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. The no. great giant Pink Floyd. Yeah, I mean, 
again, talk about great stories. Um, you know, when you when, <laughs> when you're a young marine scientist going off to study whales, you don't imagine that your your little um, dinghy one day may serve as a giant diaphragm and have to be battled um, from above <laughs> by this huge, huge male member. Uh, but that did happen. We had talked earlier about how vast the ocean is. Um, how do researchers find the whales or the fish to study their mating habits? It's a great question. And I would say that um, these sexperts, <laughs> these folks who are studying <laughs> reproduction in the sea are the most tenacious <laughs> of scientists out there. It is hard. Um, and this is why when, for example, you were saying you Googled the lobster video, right? What you found was a Friends episode. We haven't seen a lot of this stuff. So in many cases, the information we have is based on not direct, is, is not based on direct observation. Um, in some cases, we get lucky. So um, the deep sea squid and the sort of inverted crazy 69 position there was a submersible that was down there and they happened to come across this copulating couple who weren't freaked out by all the lights of the sub and just kept doing what they were doing um, on camera. That's really lucky. <laughs> it's just super, super lucky. Um, but those same scientists had also been studying, um, you know, deep sea squid reproduction by looking at mating scars and where sperm were deposited on females that had been collected in museum collections over the past like 200 years or, you know, 150 years. And they look at um, the way um, animals that we can see in the shallows reproduce and try to translate that um, to what they then see in the anatomy of the bigger animals, right? So there are these indirect methods to, to try to figure this stuff out. Um, in sharks, a lot of it is looking at genetics and looking at the, really, it's paternity tests, right? Figuring out in a female, how many male partners did she have? Well, you can look at her pups and figure out, um, you know, by looking at their DNA. So it takes a lot of creativity. It takes... Um, a lot of patience, and it takes a lot of luck. And um, some species obviously are easier than others. Um, one of my favorite stories that I, I didn't get to elaborate on in the book too much was um, talking to uh, a colleague of mine, Brad Erisman, who studies um, spawning aggregations, um, so snappers and groupers and, and these fish that get together in these big orgies. And it's really easy to go and watch right? The spawning event in some of these places and not necessarily easy. Some of them are in really remote places that are logistically hard to get to, but you know, when they're occurring, they show up at the right time. They show up in the same place, right? So you can get in the water. You might have really strong currents. It might be at night. So there's some trick tricks to it, but you can get there and watch, but then trying to, um, <laughs> follow what's happening when you're watching, you know, 5,000, 10,000 fish, spawn and they're zooming all over the place and they're flashing different colors and they're showing all these really complex mating behaviors. And then meanwhile, 
because they're releasing all this sperm and egg into the water, you've got huge whale sharks cruising overhead and you've got Caribbean reef sharks coming in to hit the snapper and grouper that are so busy spawning and having sex that they're not paying attention to the predators. Like all of a sudden it gets kind of (laughs) tricky to figure out what the hell is going on or sorry, what the heck is going on. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's a huge challenge and it's also why, you know, in a lot of cases we've gotten it wrong. Or we just have acted in a in a knowledge vacuum, and um, it's really important that we start to put the resources towards figuring this stuff out and having a little more precautionary um, perspective when it comes to management of species whose reproductive habits we don't yet know. Um, and I think will continue to learn more and more. I think technology is helping in many cases. And I think the more we realize how diverse and nuanced these, these behaviors and patterns are, the better we get at adjusting. So yeah, but it, to answer your question, it is really hard. It is really hard. So I have a somewhat unrelated question, but you mentioned sushi and as the um, (laughs) likely only vegetarian on this call, None no. of this will worry me later. Um, Moo going to hate me for this question. No, I think I have the same question. So <laughs> what, what should we, I mean, since you study this stuff, what should we yeah. as fish eaters and consumers know mm. or not know or be aware of? I know there's a lot of stuff going around about what you buy at the grocery store. It's probably not what it says it is. Right. Like, yeah. Can you, what, what, what are the secrets what can we do? of all of this? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I encourage most is to buy as as close to the source of your fisher as possible. So if you live on the coast, um, especially if if this is, say we're talking about the U.S., right, Um, the answer will be different for different places in the world. But if we focus on the U.S. um, or North America and you live on the coasts, try to go to a fishing port. You know, try to try to go meet your fishers or see if there is a um, community-supported fishery in your neighborhood. those are uh, just like CSAs. There's now CSFs where you can pay a, a monthly membership and support local fishers and get a box of fresh seafood um, delivered to your door. Or you go and pick it up. And it's a great way of A, supporting the local economy and B, supporting um, more sustainable catch. Because in general, the U.S. has pretty good fisheries policies. I mean, we really, really do. It's something that um, has taken some time, but over the last 10 to 15 years, we are seeing stocks recover and we are seeing some really good management in place. So local is great and as direct to the fisher is is also great. Um, If you don't live right on the coast, there are some really neat uh, businesses that are now forming. Um, One actually is out here in in Boulder, Colorado, so I kind of have to plug them. It's called Love the Wild. Uh, And they do packaged, sustainable, frozen uh, seafood products. And some of it's farmed, some of it's wild, but it's um, a really, you can find it in grocery stores. Um, There's also some direct um, kind of uh, companies that that supply seafood through, um, through the internet. So a salty girl seafood is another one that uh, you can go online and order um, frozen fish or fresh fish and they can ship it to you. So there's some neat new business models for how to distribute sustainably caught seafood to a, to a wider network. The other thing to do is to just 
just go low. <laughs> so that means what does that mean? when, what that means is go low on the food chain. So you want seaweed is awesome to eat, super sustainable. Shellfish, so your clams, mussels, scallops, oysters um, are fantastic options because they reproduce very quickly. They reproduce prolifically. And the more there are in the water, the cleaner the water is because they all filter feed. So they're actually taking all the junk out of the water, turning it into um, yummy, tasty meat that you can then eat. And it, um, they also often, like in the case of oysters, will build reefs, which is habitat for other species. So supporting those wild catch um, or farmed species is great. So that's the shellfish. Um, and then other sort of herb herbivorous fish. So smaller fish um, that turn over more quickly are, are a great option. Um, so turnover meaning they have fast life cycles. So they are born, they grow quickly, they mature, they reproduce like crazy, and then they die um, all within sort of a, a short life cycle so that they, they can withstand um, larger harvests. So that can be things like sardines and anchovy and um, some of the smaller, smaller mackerel um, are a great option. And if you're, you know, not a marine biologist and have no idea what's, you know, low on the food chain, <laughs> which for most people is a fair question, there are some great guides out there. Um, Monterey Bay Aquarium does the Seafood Watch card. They've been doing this for years, and it's a great guide that evaluates different fish and gives them a ranking of red, yellow, and green, with green being the most sustainable option. And, um, yeah, so those are all, all ways to, to look. And... <sighs> The other thing is there's a, there's a great movement now um, and it's all about using the fish in unusual species. So we throw a lot of fish back as bycatch. And the reason for that primarily is because fishers, there's no market. So they don't want to fill their holds with um, fish that they're not going to be able to sell, right? It's wasted space for them. And so we've got to be a lot more diverse in our eating habits here in the U.S. Um, we basically eat tuna, salmon, and shrimp. That's, you know, pretty much it. And there are so many great sustainable fish out there that we, we lose out on and fishers catch them and have to toss them back or they just get discarded, um, you know, as, as bycatch because, because there's no market. So there's some really great... Um, resources for trying to, um, <laughs> they, they, uh, some folks, sorry, I'm going to pause for a sec. I'm trying to remember the name of the campaign. Um, Is it like trash, it garbage fish, trash, trash, fish, trash fish. Yeah. Trash fish or, um, there's another name for it. Uh, anyway, eating, eating more diversified, you know, diversifying your palate is a great way to do it. And, um, there's a, fantastic series of cookbooks by a gentleman named uh, Barton Seaver. He's a chef and also a fantastic marine conservationist. And he used to run a restaurant down in Washington, D.C. called Hook. And he's really pioneered approaches to cooking and working with 
diverse and sustainable seafood products. So if you look up Barton Seaver, I always say to folks, go look up, just pick up one of Barton Seaver's cookbooks and then shop based on those recipes. And uh, you'll you'll be doing a, a big favor to the ocean and to your mouth because it's delicious. So do you eat fish regularly or do you have your own special? Yeah, I don't. Um, I actually, <laughs> I know. So, but this is, this is that it's for personal reasons. Um, I really do. If I were to, I'm, I am vegetarian, so I don't eat oh, any animals. Oh, so there's animals. two of us on this call. I, I know. It's just you. <laughs> I know. I, but I, on, I, I it's so funny because I don't eat them, but I, I push fish. I, I do think for, for the planet in general, um, if we do it right, fish really are the best animal protein um, to eat in terms of sustainability, in terms of health. So I, I really feel that if we're working towards sustainable solutions for our enormously growing human society and a finite planet, moving towards more ocean-based protein is a good solution, but it, it has to be done in the right way. And um, we can't just continue to fish thinking that the oceans can support the enormous demand that's there. We've got to cut back our demand, shift our you know eating habits to take pressure off the overfish species and expand to other, other kinds of animals in the ocean that um, can support our taste preferences and uh, our diets, and then also have really sustainable fish farming. Um, aquaculture is definitely needed. Uh, and there are some great approaches out there. There's some terrible approaches, but there's also some some really good innovation happening. So I really do encourage others others to do it. I don't eat it um, because just because of the sustainability issues. Um, I do think there are some great choices out there. I I just don't for for personal for reasons. Reason. I don't eat any yeah. animals. Yeah. Um, looking down the pipeline or <laughs> through the next few years, is there anything that gets you particularly excited? Yes. There's a lot of things that get me particularly excited. Um, as I mentioned, I think technology has opened up the world in so many ways, not only for great conservation solutions, um, but also for science. So we we have so many more tools now with which to study these species and understand what's, what is happening. I mean, one of my favorite stories um, in the book is an interview I had with um, – uh, a professor who studies sharks, uh, Jim Gelschleicher, who, <laughs> you know, he has this portable ultrasound that he can take out. He 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 describes himself as like a Ghostbuster, and it's his proton pack, and he goes out into the field and can use it to um, determine if female. Uh, sharks are pregnant and if they're really lucky see how many pups are inside and so for highly endangered species like he works on um the sawfish small tooth sawfish um where you can't sample these animals right we can't you know there are not many left so you don't want to take them out of the water um but understanding their reproduction is really critical to knowing um when to maybe close down certain areas or protect nursery habitats or you know a whole slew of reasons, he can now go into the field and, and figure some of this stuff out using these portable ultrasound um, machines, which is, you know, they're still clunky, but man, we, a couple years ago, you could, you couldn't even think about doing stuff like that. Um, the deep sea submersibles are giving us eyes and um, other, other sensory systems into, into so much, so many new habitats and areas of the ocean. Um, we're doing tremendous work with acoustics. So that's listening to the sounds of the ocean, um, which 
are produced by, you know, not just whales singing their hearts out to, uh, during mating season, but, um, you know, cod and haddock and uh, snapping shrimp. And, and there's just, there's a lot that you can figure out by listening to the sounds of the sea. And you can also use it, um, proactively to help protect areas and protect, um, certain species. So one of the things in, in Sex and the Sea that I talk about is how researchers have set up a network of acoustic listening stations off of, um, Boston, where the right whales um, often they've been in trouble by sorry let me start again they've set up a researchers have set up a network of listening stations in the northeast and it helps captains who are coming in with these big uh, tankers and and other big vessels to ports they can now detect if there's a right whale in the region um, based on hearing the sound and they can pinpoint within a couple miles of where that whale might be so that boat captains and ship captains can slow down and set uh, someone up on watch. And the amount of ship strikes have decreased drastically since this has been put in place. So it's a fantastic way of using acoustics to better manage and and sort of in real time adjust to where these animals are to help um, make the water safer and allow them to continue to pass through uh, while not, you know, disrupting the the shipping traffic, you know, completely. Um, but it's, it's a great solution. Drones are another amazing piece of technology that I think we're only just starting to figure out uh, in terms of not only um, being able to survey and monitor things like coral bleaching events, but also be able to um, cut down on pirate fishing. There are huge swaths of the ocean that we never have been able to enforce. You know, it's just impossible to send a boat out there or have eyes on the water in some of these places that now we actually do. And that's not just from drones, but also satellite technology. So um, for folks who are interested, there's a great project called Eyes on the Sea. And it's a way that you can go online and you can look at where fishing vessels are all over the globe. And um, folks can start to report if they're seeing vessels offshore and if um, from satellite technology, if we're seeing vessels in closed areas where they're not supposed to be. And this all just brings a level of transparency to activity on the water that we've just never had before. And I think that is a huge, huge new step in the way that we are going to be able to practically manage our oceans. So I'm really excited about that. Well, I think that's all the questions that we have. Um, thank you so much, Mara, for uh, joining us today. This was fascinating. Well, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't um, wax on too much. I, I love talking about all this stuff. So I get super excited. And if anybody um, has any questions or, or you want any follow-up, don't hesitate to reach out. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.